Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about something I just think is cool or have a question about, and then I teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And today, we're going to be joined by an extra special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, please. Yes, please. Okay. My name is Hudson, and I'm seven years old. That's right. Our son Hudson is going to be joining us to help us because recently Hudson and I were listening to a cool science podcast for kids. Hudson, you remember what it's called? Tumble. Tumble, that's right. Pretty cool. Check it out if you have kids Um, or if you just like science explained to kids. Uh, Yeah, and it was about, what was it about? The invasive species of the cane toads in Australia. That's right, about the cane toads in Australia and how they're an invasive species. Um, so then I thought I would do a podcast on invasive species. Invasive species. I don't think I said that weird. Um, but there's a lot, turns out. Sure. So when I decided to do a one-hour episode, I, I had to narrow it down a little bit. And I thought, let's just stick to Australia and New Zealand a little bit too. Sure. Can't forget that. No. Feels a little rude to them. Just like how, you know, in Canada, it's always like, and the U.S. and Canada is there, too. Yeah. Um, so I get it, New Zealand. But there's, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about Australia mostly. Okay. Uh, so Hudson, I was hoping you could help tell the story of the cane toads in Australia. And then I will talk about other uh, invasive species a little bit later after Hudson uh, goes back to playing whatever game he's going to play. Of course. So how about you teach me something? Hudson and me, right? That's right. We're going to teach you something. Go for it. Okay. Well, Hudson, what was the plant that started this whole story off? Sugarcane. Sugarcane, right. So um, they tried really early on when Australia was first being uh, colonized by Britain to to grow sugarcane there. And like in the early part of the 19th century, it, it was going well enough that they kind of started moving further north with planting and growing a lot more sugarcane. And it became a really valuable um, industry, even though, you know, it's tough. There's drought. Uh, there's native species, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, and just FYI for everyone, the father of the sugar industry in Australia is Captain Louis Lewis Hope. Louis? Louis? Oh. I guess it depends. Yeah. Uh, probably though, probably British. So I'm going to go with Louis. Louis, sure. Yeah. Louis Hope. Um, yeah. In 1862 is when he kind of first made it big on the scene, and then he built a sugar mill and all of that. But, like I said, one of the problems is the native species. So, Hudson. Yeah? Remind us, what is the issue here for the sugar cane? What native species? The cane beetles. That's okay. right. So um, the thing is that cane beetles were just like, hey, those beetles are eating the sugar cane. They're cane beetles. But no one really, like, are they the same beetles? Are we talking about different beetles? Is any beetle that eats the sugar cane plant a cane beetle now? So right. um, it took a while to determine, like decades, to determine which beetles are the problem here. Um, but, so, but that was at the time. Like at isolated? the time, we're just like cane beetles are the beetles that are eating my sugar cane right now. Okay, so but in been, their time, did they ever resolve if it was different species or 
explicit species or? Uh, yeah, decades okay. later, the beetles okay. were identified. Um, the gray-backed cane beetle, which is Dermolepida alborhirtum, and French's beetle, which is Lepidiota frenchi. So both of those are native beetles to Australia, and they were a problem for the sugarcane. Mm-hmm. How were they a problem for the sugarcane, Hudson? Because they laid their eggs by the roots, so the pro- the farmers couldn't dig up the beetles without holding their crops. Right, mm. so the adult beetles ate what part of the plant? The roots. The adult beetles. Are they, what did they eat again? The leaves. They, the adult beetles ate the leaves. Right, and then the grubs, the larvae, ate the roots. Right. So that was a problem. Um, so cane farmers pretty much lobbied the government of Australia to do something about this, and the government established the Bureau of Sugar Experiment Stations Ooh. in 1900. I know, that's like a pretty, pretty sweet cool position. name. I don't know. So it's now called Sugar... You didn't get that one. Oh, it's okay. Oh, oh, oh. I got it. Oh, no. <laughs> No, I got that one quite late. Okay. Just as I was about to keep speaking, and that was just, that was a groaner. Yeah. Yeah. A dad joke. That was a dad joke. Hudson, did you get the dad joke? No. no. Went over his head. That's okay. Went over my head for a second, too. I mean, I am speaking directly over his head at you, so this makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, it's called Sugar Research Australia now. Even though I think Bureau of Sugar Experiment Stations is cooler. But Sugar is Research cooler. Australia still sounds like a cool place to work. Um, so they remembered something about biological controls. Hudson, do you remember what a biological control is? Is it when you like bring a species from another place to a place that it isn't at? Well, kind of. You're right. It's when we use a, a living thing, a species of living thing... To control another species of living thing in some way. So maybe it could be done with native animals, but you just got to release a bunch more of them in a spot or engineer the native animals genetically. But in this case, scientists remembered how Australia used the Cactoblastis cactorum moth to control prickly pear cactus when it invaded Australia. Mm-hmm. So it and wasn't like a new thing for them. Right, so they thought that was successful, so they should go looking for a biological control for this problem. And what did they pick, Hudson? Cane toads. Right, the cane toads were going to replace toxic pesticides like arsenic, pitch, and copper, which they were using. So they thought that this is a pretty good idea. Um, Important. So in June 1935, they imported 102 cane toads from Hawaii to this special breeding site near Cairns, and then they just reproduced and by august 2400 were released in the the area the queensland i think it's queensland area they, um, they near were just Cairns. straight up released they weren't like taken to cane sugar cane farms and like released explicitly on those sites or something it just said released in the surrounding areas okay um so they did stop the releases temporarily because of environmental concerns but then they just resumed after seemingly not resolving any of the environmental concerns um, after September 1936, and by March 1937, 62,000 toadlets were bred in captivity and released around Carnes, Gordonvale, and Innisfail in northern Queensland. 
And then a bunch of other Australian place names that I'll probably say wrong. So I'm just a bunch of different places. Okay. Yeah. Um, but here's the thing, Hudson. Yeah. Did they help this problem? Nope. What happened? The cane toads ate everything, and one of the things that they couldn't was the cane beetles. That's right. They ate everything except the cane beetles, basically. Why yeah. didn't they eat the cane beetles? Because the cane beetles were in the ground, and they and they couldn't dig. And the adults were up in the leaves. Yeah. But why couldn't they eat those? Because the adults couldn't dig. They couldn't reach the adult beetles in the leaves because they can't jump very high. They are yeah. not a high-jumping toad, so they just couldn't reach them. So they couldn't reach the adult cane beetles, and they couldn't get to the larvae. So they so, didn't eat them. Yeah, didn't really have access to them. Hudson, do you remember maybe something scientists should have done that they didn't do? They should have tested out if the cane beetles were going to eat the... Wait, they should have tested out if the cane toads would eat the cane beetles. Yeah, and did they do any studies like that? Nope. Nope. Just okay. none. Silly scientists. Silly scientists <laughs> is right. They did not ever determine whether cane toads would eat cane beetles before they decided to use them as a biological control. To be fair, a lot of places did this. I don't know if that makes it better. But like Florida, Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines, the, the Caribbean islands, the Western Pacific islands, Papua New Guinea, there's a lot of places that just assumed cane toads were going to be the answer to their pest problem. They were presented at an expo in the States at nine, right before this happened, I think 1932, okay. which is where I really got the idea from. They're like, here is the solution to your problem. So a lot of people did a lot of things with these toads without really studying anything. Fun. Yeah. Now, were they called cane toads before this? That's what I was wondering. Yeah. I didn't really actually find an answer. I was so confused about that. But cane toads, where are they from, Hudson? Do you remember? South America. Yeah, South and Central America. Exactly. So, I mean, there were cane, sugar canes there. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I really don't know. I couldn't find that. But So, the cane toad used to be called Bufo marinus. Now, it's a Rhinella marina. They've changed its genus and species. Okay. Association. Um, it's big or gets big. It's warty. I did see a picture. Um, I don't think it's as large. ugly as people say it is, but they're no. really big. Um, so, yeah, how big are they? I know you don't know this. We didn't talk about this. I know you looked stunned when I asked you that question, Hudson, but I'm going to answer it, okay? Okay. Okay. So, in 2023, which is not this year anymore. No. Nope. Yeah. I was about to say earlier this year when I was writing it and I thought, uh oh, it's yeah. not that year anymore. Rangers discovered a female cane toad in Conway National Park in North Queensland, and it was recorded unofficially at being 25 centimeters long mm -hmm. and 2.7 kilograms. It's probably the largest ever seen. Uh, yeah. They called it Toadzilla. Godzilla, like Godzilla? Exactly yeah, like right. that. Do you think that's funny? Yeah. Yeah. So they have um, preserved her for display at the Queensland Museum. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so just in general, cane toads are considered one of the worst invasive species in the world. Um, like I said, that's uh, thanks to some cool international convention that just decided that they should do these things, and the silly scientists that just didn't uh, do any experiments beforehand. 
Um, now, Hudson, do you remember anything about what made the cane toads such good invaders? They ate everything so they didn't, so the native species to Australia didn't have enough food and... Kind of. Yeah, that is, that is, that is a good point. So they're adaptable. In, in so many ways. They can survive um, temperatures from as low as 5 degrees Celsius to like 46 degrees Celsius. They can live in urban areas, agricultural areas, the dunes, the grasslands, rainforests, the swamps. They can live anywhere. Um, they prefer fresh water, but they can actually tolerate salt water for short periods of time. They've swum across the ocean from the coast of the Northern Territory to small islands surrounding Australia before. Wow. Um, in dry conditions, they can lose up to half their moisture and still be fine, survive. Um, and they'll eat everything. So they mostly eat insects, but they'll eat frogs or small mammals or reptiles or snails or baby birds or fruit or pet food, food out of the trash cans in the alleys. Um, just, just anything that they can fit in their mouth, they will try to eat. The other thing that makes them such good invaders is that they outcompete the native frogs and toads, and not just for food. Hudson, do you remember how many eggs the cane toad can lay at once? Uh, 30,000? That's right. At once? At once. They'll do that about twice a year. And wow. in comparison, most Australian native frogs, do you remember this one, Hudson? How many do they lay? Lay, lay. A thousand to two thousand. Right. Okay. And on the same frequency as well? Um, it, That number is an a per year estimate. I couldn't find a... Okay. Yeah. So we're talking about one to two thousand versus thirty to sixty thousand. Yeah. Definitely. There's a little bit of a disparity there. Yeah. So about one in two hundred cane toad eggs develop and survive to adulthood, but... Well, okay. Sure. It, Whatever, it's probably a similar rate in other frogs or yeah. something. Actually, it's probably not a similar rate in other frogs. I remember why it's not. I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, they reach sexual maturity in a year or two, breed for five years usually, but like up to 15 could be. Holy cow. Um, and another key to their success is that they are kind of a quick evolving toad, turns out. Um, scientists noticed significant changes in the cane toads as they traveled from where they were released in Australia, westward. Um, toads that were at the front of this, like, territory expansion, they had longer, stronger legs okay. than other cane toads in different places, so they could move more quickly. Um, the issue is that apparently these longer legs cause an increase in arthritis. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. So the trade-off's happening, but they've, they've already been changing since they've been in Australia. Wow. Um, and, and the last... But probably worst thing about them is that they're poisonous. Hmm. So cane That's toads, also not good. yeah, they secrete this poison from the parotid glands behind their shoulders. So it looks like they have really big lumps on the back of their head, shoulder area. That's probably the part that people find ugly about them. Okay. People think they're really ugly. I looked up a picture. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think they're really ugly, Hudson? No. You know, they're just kind of average, right? They're like kind of average toad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the poison is called a bufotoxin, which makes sense because bufo is toad, but um, it contains several different chemicals, such as a bufogen, which affects the heart, and bufotenine, which is a hallucinogen. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So the thing is, is that 
an animal might bite it or lick it and whatever, and they're going to die. Right. It's an issue. So that's not good. That's really not good. It's not good for your dog, if your dog likes to lick toads. Or it's just, just a native good. ecosystem where it might try to get rid of an invader. Yes. So the cane toad eggs are very toxic. They're poisonous to fish and the um, basically just they make the water around them. Just okay. toxic. And as tadpoles, the poison's going to start to spread throughout their body and the toxin levels drop as the tadpoles develop. So baby toads are the least poisonous life stage. Okay. At that point, edible by anything in the ecosystem? Well, you'll see. Some things, okay. some things eat them. Um, but remember how I said they're evolving quickly, Hudson? You remember that? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing we discovered last year about the keen toad. What is it? They're cannibals. But we already knew that part, actually. That's not the thing we discovered. Do you know what a cannibal is? Is it like, oh, uh, yeah, it eats, uh, it, like, little things. It, 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 it eats itself. That, you're correct. Cane toads eat other cane toads, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we knew that, actually. But the new thing is the toxin that makes them poisonous that we just talked about, that also induces in them this, like, compulsive feeding frenzy behavior. So, when the toxins are emitted by fresh hatchlings, cane toad tadpoles in the area just start eating everything in sight. Okay. Um, starting with those new hatchlings. So, in fact, they tried this experiment where they added a drop of toxin to the water with the tadpoles in it, and they would just eat anything the scientists put in the tank. Okay. Um, and, and that seems kind of counterproductive to eat your own, uh, species and your own young, right, Hudson? Like, how yeah. do you, does that make any sense to you? No. As a thing to do? Well, I think Kamala dragons do that too. They eat all baby Kamala dragons, right? Yes, you're right. Okay. You're right about your favorite animal, the Komodo dragon. And there are animals that do that, but here's why it might make sense. Because the cane toads don't have natural predators in Australia, yeah. other cane toads are really their biggest competition and their yeah. their biggest uh, threat almost is other cane toads. So cannibalism is a way of pruning down the numbers and making sure the strongest toads survive and there's not too many other toads competing for resources with you. But the really super interesting part, I think at least, is that the same researchers that did this study with the cane toads, they did another study last year with cane toads, but the ones that live in their native habitats. Okay. And the ones that live in their native habitats don't resort to nearly the same level of cannibalism as the Australian ones do. Right. But I assume they also have natural predators in that case, in their natural habitat. Yes. Okay. It's just this is kind of a fascinating example of how an invasive species can evolve this new... Trait. Newer or, behavior yeah. to regulate their population. Um, that I just want to... This is a tangent, but another cool example of that happens in American bullfrogs. Because in their native habitat, where they live in eastern North America, they occasionally eat their own young. Very okay. occasionally. But on Vancouver Island, where they are an invasive species and they have no natural predators, some bullfrogs subsist mostly just on other bullfrogs. That's really? almost all they eat. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, back 
back on track here. <laughs> so in February 2009, there's a, I don't want to say, it's not a good milestone, but cane toads crossed the Western Australia border with the Northern Territory, which was, well, it's over 2,000 kilometers from where they were released. Okay. Over the course of, what, 60 years? 70 years? Yeah, yeah, 70, is it? Okay. Yeah. Um, so now they've spread well beyond there. Like, they spread into coastal New South Wales, um, the top part of the Northern Territory, the Kimberley region of Western Australia. So it's estimated they move west about 60 kilometers a year at this point. Wow. That's how much they expand their territory. That's quite a bit. Um, and to this day, in the 85 years it's been in Australia, in total, they now take up or live over 1.2 million square kilometers of Australia. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. And the current population is over 200 million. Isn't that crazy, Hudson? 200 million? Yeah. Is it like bigger than billions? No, 200 million is not bigger than a billion. You would need five 200 millions to be a billion. Oh, okay. Does that mean it's not that many then? Well, well. It's only 200 million? No. No, that, that's actually pretty. That's actually pretty, um, crazy. It is pretty crazy. So. In Australia, the toad was first declared a problem species in 1950. And, um, yeah, they just realized it was a huge blow to their biodiversity. They didn't even eat the cane beetle. What was the point? Um, They also outcompeted the native animals for a lot of resources, like shelter, for instance. So, a 2004 study showed that the cane toads ruined one-third of nest attempts of the rainbow bee-eater, which is a ground-nesting bird. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's either because they ate their eggs and chicks, or because they just stole their their nest. Yeah, the location. Sure. They need a burrow. Why not? Yeah. They don't dig their own burrows. Anyways, another example is that cane toads prey on dung beetles. By basically walking up. Hudson, have you ever seen cow poop? I don't think so. Well, it's like a big, some people call it a cow pie. Mm-hmm. Like a big Why? plop of poop. Why Why do they call cow poop a pie? Just kind of the way it looks, I guess. It's kind of a circle shape when it lands on the ground. I don't know. We'll have to just show you some cow poop sometime. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how we live in a place so famous for beef and... Yeah. You've never seen cow poop. But the dung beetle will, like, go in the cow poop and, like, lay... Or not the dung beetle. Sorry. The the toad will go in the cow poop and lay in wait, basically, for dung beetles to just wander over and it just eats them. So... Okay. It can eat, like, 150 at a time. Holy cow. And you might think this is no big deal. But in areas where cane toads have free access to, like, still water, basically, the dung beetle populations have been decimated... And the eradication of dung beetles is going to lead to increased diseases and stuff in cattle. Right. That makes sense? Yeah. Why do you think that it would lead to cow diseases to not have dung beetles around? What do dung beetles do? They they will poop into the den. Right. So they kind of clean up the poop, right? Yeah. Right. And if they're not around anymore. No more poop cleanup. All that gross stuff can get the cows sick. Yeah. 
So just going back to the poison thing, the toads um, feel pretty safe because of their poison. So they don't run or hide from predators, which is why so many predators get poisoned. Sure. You know, Australia's natural predators aren't really adapted to poisonous animals that much, specifically not these toads. Yeah. Um, so one study suggests Australian reptiles are the most threatened by the invasion of the cane toads. Um, two species of crocodiles and about 70 species of freshwater turtles were found to be at risk by the invasion. And all the species they studied were capable of eating a toad large enough to kill them. Like fitting it into their mouth, basically. That's kind of how they measure these things. Okay. Um, all the freshwater turtles and crocodiles in Australia are going to share part of their habitat with cane toads by 2030, judging by current numbers, expansion-wise. Um, they also caused huge declines in the populations of the northern coal. Remember those things, Hudson? The little cute marsupials? Coal? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Joannas, snake populations. Um, for example, the yellow-spotted monitor had a population reduction of 90% when cane toads invaded their habitat. Um, but there are some things that do eat them or have started eating them. Do you want to know what those are? What? Okay. So there's some birds, like the black kite or the whistling kite or the Teresian crow, which have learned to attack the toad's belly. Like they flip it over, um, and just eat parts away from the back of the head where the poison is. Sure. Um, reptiles, let's talk about reptiles. The Australian freshwater crocodile had learned to just eat the hind legs of cane toads. The freshwater saw-shelled turtle is able to eat them. Um, the keelback snake, which is a non-venomous species in northern Australia, they seem to be able to eat them without uh, any lethal damage. Uh, and they think that's because the keelback is one of the most, um, or its ancestors at least, one of the most recent snakes to arrive in Australia. And they evolved in Asia. In Asia, there is toads with similar toxins to the cane toad. So So there's probably some genes left over in there that could maybe deal with that. Um, But the red-bellied black snake doesn't have that special evolutionary link. So they've had to adapt just while the cane toads have been there. And populations of the black snake where cane toads live have developed a higher resistance to toxins. And some are now avoiding eating the toads altogether. Hmm. Okay. Um, The most interesting, though, is that in some areas, the black snakes have evolved smaller heads, which physically prevent them from fitting a large enough toad in their mouth to kill them in one go. Isn't that interesting, Hunter? Yeah. They have smaller mouths now. Um, in 2019, scientists found that the rockily, I think we talked about them one time when we talked about platypus. They are an Australian water rat. Rakali? Am I saying it wrong? Rakali. I'm going to say Rakali. Sounds better than Rakali. Anyways. Um, they've learned to make this incision, like a cut in the belly to just eat the heart and liver of the cane toads, which are not poisonous. Yeah. And they realized that that strategy, um, developed over just two years after the cane toads were introduced into the habitat. They've learned, they learned that in two years. That's impressively fast. That is great. Um, dolls, aquatic frog eat the tadpoles, it seems like. And then the last one that I want to talk about is the meat ant. The meat, meat ant. ant? It's called the meat ant, and I've never heard of a meat ant before. Okay. It's an ant native to Australia. And in 2009, they found out it was immune to the poison. Um, and 
They eat toads. These ants are big enough that they can prey on young toads. Okay. So the toads don't run away because, you know, they're they, poisonous and they yeah. don't think they have to. And they just let a bunch of ants crawl over them and they get eaten. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So how do you think you could possibly control an animal like this, Hudson? Do you have any ideas for the Australian government? Um, they should, um, I don't think they should, like, bring species from South America that eat the toast, because then that would just make the problem happen again with that species, so... That's a good point. Yeah. So they should take biological controls off the table, at least of non-native species. Yeah. Okay, well... So the Australian government's actually said, quote, there is unlikely to ever be a broad-scale method available to control cane toads across Australia. Okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so one solution they're proposing is teacher toads. So, toads. Yeah. Feed smaller toads that are, are not going to kill the animal to the predators so that they learn to not eating or eat that anymore because it made them so sick the first time. Okay. Uh, similarly, there's another study where they're taking large predators like the yellow spotted monitor and San Joanna. Is it Goanna or Joanna? Don't know. Okay. And they feed them, you know, the young, small cane toads and yeah, hope to give them a food poisoning experience. Woohoo. So that they don't eat an adult toad. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't suppress the population of cane toads, though. No. These are to protect the vulnerable native species that are being wiped out. Got it. So there's multiple control angles being, like... Pursued. Yeah. So another thing that's a lot like what we just said is they're blending up bits of toad with a chemical that makes um, animals nauseous. Okay. And making sausages. Hmm. And okay. leaving them in the wild. This this is a trial they're doing in Kimberley in Western Australia. So maybe they're thinking that the animals will associate, you know, the toad meat taste and smell with that nausea experience. So it's very similar to the other two methods. Yeah. Um, there's some people that are suggesting introducing a native virus or bacteria to try to wipe them out. Does that sound like a good idea, Hudson? Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Well, the, well, the bacteria just go to a different animal that that, it, that they don't want it to. That is exactly right. That's exactly why they think it might be too risky. It could invade native species, or As well. yeah, you know, it could mutate and invade humans. Mm-hmm. Animal diseases bad. are not good. Yes, um, there's two kind of reproduction related strategies they're exploring. One involves releasing sterile males into the population. Do you know what sterile means, Hudson? It means they can't have babies. Oh. So the sterile males would compete for mates and resources with other males and they can't reproduce. Yeah. Or the second strategy is they're going to maybe insert a gene in female toads, which would mean they could only have male offspring. Sure. Okay. Um. So... Several pathways being explored, but it doesn't have to be so complicated. They are making fences around dams, you know, other still fresh water. Yeah. And, you know, that's a little bit of a more low-tech solution. Apparently, you can make a toad-proof fence. I don't really know. That sounds hard. 
Yeah. I but, mean, it's probably just having to do with size of the, you know, fence links or something like that that would allow other species through and just be too small for the cane toads because they're so large. Yeah. So that's um, that's the story of cane toads in Australia. Do you have any questions about that, Hudson, or anything else you want to add from the story that you remember? I don't. Okay. Thank you for coming on our podcast and helping me tell the story about cane toads. You're welcome. Do you want to say bye? Bye. And I would like to go on a podcast again sometime. Okay. Excellent. We'll make it happen. Okay. Bye, Hudson. Bye. Okay, for our next story, um, well, if you had to guess after, I don't know, cane toads I think are pretty famous, what's like the next most famous invasive animal to Australia? What's like the other big, flashing, uh, bu- big name? Bunnies? <laughs> Bunnies, also called rabbits by sometimes. people that do science. Uh, and sometimes by people who don't do science. <laughs> But Sometimes. always called bunnies by those who think they're adorable, I guess. Probably. Yeah. I Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, rabbits are another one of those well-known stories. Um, they've had a problem with the European rabbits since the late eight, 19th century. Uh, there's maybe 200 million feral rabbits in Australia now. Oh, that's it? Now. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no big deal. Just round them up quick. It's only 20% of 1 billion. Yeah. 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 Um, so in 1859, rabbits, European rabbits were introduced for what reason? Hunting. Of course. Yeah. So Thomas Austin, who was a wealthy settler, he lived in Victoria, um, Victoria in Australia. He had 13 wild rabbits from Europe sent to him. 13. 13. And, and he let them roam free on million? his estate. It only took them 50 years to get from his little backyard area to uh, the whole country. Wow. Okay. Great. Slash continent. I guess we can call it a continent just for dramatics. They spread across the whole continent in only 50 years. I think if you want to downplay it, you could say across the whole island. Their genetic diversity must be so low. Yeah, exactly. Except for... They may like bunnies, so sure. they have a lot of generations, so maybe not. I don't know, but yeah. from 13. Anyways, um, why are they successful? Well, like the cane toads, they're adaptable. And not only are they adaptable, they are rabbits. And rabbits are well known for how many offspring that they can have. Yeah. So that helps, obviously. They can reproduce all year round. They can reproduce at a young age. They can produce more than four litters a year. Wow. And that averages two to five kits per litter. Okay. What's yeah. the survivability of an individual? I don't know. Okay. I didn't I didn't find that statistic. This sure. is already gonna be a long enough episode. Got it. <laughs> Sorry, Keep everybody. Going. Um so their numbers, you know, became so large they're obviously a threat to crops, to the land, soil erosion. Is a big issue. Um, they negatively affect, of course, agriculture. Yeah. Um, but like native plants too by overgrazing. And they contributed to the decline of a lot of the native plant and animal species. I'm going to get into some more specific numbers in a bit. Um, so the government, again, knew that this is an issue. Um, initially, they worked with farmers to build fences to keep the rabbits out. Um, the government even commissioned a fence that stretches all the way across Western Australia, like north to south. 
Holy cow. Um, but that didn't do much. Hmm. Is the thing, the fencing. Well, I would also assume that it would negatively or yeah, negatively affect native populations as well. I also assume that. Yeah. So in the 1950s, the Australian government again tried biological control. Okay. So they released rabbits infected with um, myxoma, which is a just a rabbit virus, rabbit specific. Okay. And they released them into southeastern Australia. This was the first time a virus was purposely introduced to the wild to eradicate an animal. Sure. Yeah. Um, so myxoma leads to myxomatosis, which is, again, rabbit disease only. Um, and yeah, a lot of the rabbits did die and then they died off to such an extent that the remaining ones had a resistance to the virus and then repopulate, you know, like, so it's like antibiotic resistant bacteria, but you know, basically the rabbits are just, you know, not going to fall for that one anymore. Try a different strategy. Um, so then they tried rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus. Oh, they went down the, the virus route again. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, which is another rabbit-specific thing that scientists found in the 1980s. Um, so it's caused by an RNA virus transmitted by flies. So the good th- good thing, the thing about this one is um, that it can kill in like 48 hours. Like it's real. Oh. It's a real fast and uh, fast disease. Um, it was officially released in 1996, and it lowered rabbit numbers in Australia by up to 90 percent, okay. especially in the dry areas. Apparently, um, because the flies uh, don't actually do well in really wet conditions or even in cooler conditions. So rabbits that lived in areas like that did a little better. Sure. Yeah. Um, so just like the myxoma virus, though, rabbits have started to develop resistance to this hemorrhagic virus. Um, so now researchers are studying more deadly strains of the hemorrhagic virus. Um, so I don't know if they're just going to keep hmm. every, you know, few decades. We'll just biological warfare on the rabbits. We'll just have a different virus. I don't know. I'll just keep resisting. Who, sure. who knows? But. Um, that's not the only thing that was done, unfortunately. There's a lot of poison used to control the rabbits. Yeah, and I'm sure that would have a lot of, again, collateral damage on the native species that they're trying to protect. Um, yes. Yes and no. Yes, it's not great, but there are ways of being more safe about it. Like when they, they can, uh, fumigate like rabbit warrens with carbon monoxide and phosphine. So they can stick something underground in okay. the warrens and target the rabbits more specifically. Um, unfortunately, you know, people also use sodium fluoroacetate just to kind of in bait. And that's, yeah, when you would have more kills of native animals because it's like a 90% mortality rate, that poison. It's real bad. Yikes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so the next animals I want to talk about. Okay. Are in this specifically because their name is cool. Okay. And I shoehorn them in because they aren't so much a threat in Australia as Christmas Island. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, But Christmas Island, which if you don't know, is in the Indian Ocean. It's south of Java, the Indonesian island of um, Java. 
Um, Christmas Island is a territory of Australia. Cool. So it totally counts. Totally. Yeah. So this is about the yellow crazy ant. Anaplolepis gracilipes. Gracilipes? Yeah. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to believe you. Yeah. So it's also called the long-legged ant or the Maldive ant, but, you know, that's not as cool. Um, they're named for their frenetic movements. Craziness? Yeah. Okay. Crazy moves. So the people think they're native to West Africa or Asia, but they've been accidentally introduced like a lot of places. So I assume that's not on purpose. Most of the introduction of like something like this. Yeah. Like shipping and yeah. Unfortunately, we live in a global society. Yeah. Fortunately, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, we live in a global society and things are getting everywhere. Sure. Um, on Christmas Island, though, they formed these multi-queen super colonies in at least eight different areas of the rainforest. Um, they forage in all different habitats, including the canopy of the rainforest. Um, and it becomes really established and dominant in new habitats. This gun is really good at invading everywhere as well. Um, this is blamed on their traits like aggression towards other ant species, uh, lower aggression towards its own species. Okay. And um a large just like large colony sizes. And crazy legs. Uh that's clearly what helps them be a great invader. Yeah. I agree. It's on the list of requirements. Um so I think there's a lot of nature documentaries and shows I've watched that show the special feature you might have heard about on Christmas Island, which is those Awesome red land crabs. Yes. The millions and millions and millions of crabs that migrate. They're super cool. They were super cool. Hmm. Yeah. The way you say were makes me think that it's related to crazy legs here. Well, yeah, the crazy ants really destructive for this ecosystem. They're killing and displacing the red land crabs on the forest floor, and the land crabs are keystone species, so like they dig burrows, they turn the soil, they fertilize the soil with the droppings like if they go, the whole ecosystem is going to be thrown for a big loop here. Um, so in just 18 months, the, the crazy ants were able to kill 3 million crabs. Wow. In the first three months, or 18 months that they were there. And and since then, like to date, it's, the number is about 20 million crabs. So um, they're really devastating, that population. Um, there's infested areas where just the red crabs are completely wiped out. Yeah. So... There is also this knock-on effect, like the red crabs would come eat seedlings, and now there was no one to eat these seedlings. So they started to grow, and they changed the whole forest structure. Weeds are spreading into the forest, because there's no crabs there to control the weeds. Um, there's this stinging tree, now I have to say this name, Dendronidae peltata. I think that's how you say it, but there's a C before the end. I was just assuming the C was silent. silent. Yeah, makes sense. Because <laughs> otherwise that word would be crazy. Just like the ants and their legs. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's a stinging tree, and now it's just everywhere in the forest. And people are, that people that do live there, and the tourists there, are getting, you know... Stung. Stung by a tree. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so um, the other issue is that red ants... And lots of ant- other ants. I remember farm-scale insects. I think we, we talked about this in yep, our Animal Farmer episode. But they form scale ants, insects as their main for, uh, form of, of sustenance. Like the the lac bugs, I think they're called. 
Um, and so these bugs are taking over trees and ecosystems as well because they're flourishing and there's so many of them. The ants are farming them, right? They're defending them. Yeah, they're correct. helping them grow. They're So they're also having an impact on the ecosystem. Um, so less than 5% of the rainforest on Christmas Island has been invaded so far, though. So Okay. There's that. Um, but scientists are already concerned that there's, like, endangered birds there, like the Abbott's booby, which don't nest anywhere else in the world. Sure. And these ants would definitely eat a bird. Okay. These ants eat albatrosses. Wow. Wow. Okay. These are the ants that take out an albatross. Uh, I still don't get how, but they do. Determination. Yeah. So, um, Parks Australia did a major aerial baiting program in 2009. There was, like, the first one in 2002, but they did a really big one in 2009. And to do that, they had to have all these staff for, like, months walk around the island and survey 900-something sites and find all the super colonies, make a map of all the infestation, like, just walk over the whole island. Um, and so they, they like, used a helicopter and dropped in baits precisely where they wanted them right near the super colonies. Um, and they did, it was like 99% they reduced the ant density. Wow. So that was awesome. Um, the problem is, you know, then, then the ants come back. Sure. So if you don't get them all, you know, eventually you're going to have to do this again and again. Um, and it's expensive. So again, Australia, decided they should go with biological controls. Okay, sure. Okay, so in December 2016, they imported the Tachardia Ephagis somervillii, which is a very small wasp, like we're talking two millimeters long. Hmm. Um, and they bred them and released them. And the, these wasps, you're probably wondering what they're going to do because they're two yeah. millimeters long. Well, just wondering if they're going to cause more havoc on the ecosystem or actually take care of the crazy ants. We're going to see, but they attack only scale insects. Okay, so the food source. Yes. So they're hoping that this is a good route to go down. This also assumes that there aren't more of those scale insects in in the natural ecosystem. Right. I kind of don't think they would have done this program if there were native ants that also farm scale insects that they were going to extinct. Sure. I, I, you would I mean, hope. I mean, yeah. Like, I don't want to say for sure because governments are governments and yeah. bad decisions happen all the time. But that just seems so unlikely to me. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Maybe. Um, so they're also trying a program where they bind the trees the scale insects are feeding on. And in the trial they did, it reduced the colony dramatically because um, the ant activity fell by 95% in four weeks. So that's pretty cool. Um, in Australia proper, they have found yellow crazy ants at more than 30 places, um, mostly just like Queensland. And it's like 2,100 acres of infestation there. Okay. Sounds like a lot. I mean, not against the total landmass of Australia, but that's right. like a lot, of, a lot of area. Yeah, it's all like in and around the what's called the wet tropics of Queensland rainforest, which is a World Heritage Site, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, the issue is that 
climate modeling says these guys could spread across northern Australia um, from Queensland to Western Australia. Like, just, they could spread all over and very, very quickly. Um, so the cost-benefit analysis by the Queensland government was like, okay, this could cost us over $3 billion Australian um, if we don't do something about it. And so they've been pretty successful controlling some of the stuff um, in the Northern Territory, but there's there's some more to go. And Yellow Crazy Ant might not be their biggest ant problem. Really? Uh, no, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. Because for some reason, we're going to talk about sea stars next. Oh. I didn't really put any logic into the order of the animals after the first two. So you just want to do a cliffhanger between ants. Animals. Yeah. Okay. You got to wait. Sure. Sea um, stars. The Northern Pacific sea star, which is native to kind of around China, Japan, Korea area, um, were brought over in the ballast water yeah. from ships. So, like, again, we're not talking some purposeful introduction this time. No one wants to hunt them. Um, so why are they an issue? Because they're very aggressive eaters and eat pretty much anything they find. And they reproduce quickly. You know, yeah. these are the hallmarks of a sex- successful invasive like invasive species, right? Totally, yeah. Yeah. In one area where they were introduced, they got up to about 12 million sea stars in just two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're really bad for endangered species. They've been blamed for the population declines of the spotted handfish, which is critically endangered. All right. Yeah. So, so they're bad. No bueno. Okay. Another one that's bad um, is the red fox. Oh, okay. Uh, seriously, seriously bad. Were they there to hunt the rabbits? Or were oh, they biological control? No, good guess, but what's your next guess? Hunting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they were introduced to the British colonies of Van Diemen's Land. Van Di- I don't know what that is. That's the old name of Australia. Oh, is it? I'm, yeah, great. I didn't know that. Yeah, Okay. As early as 1833, and the Sydney region of New South Wales uh, as early as 1845. And why did they bring them? Why the, you know, the only glorious reason. English tradition that we have to uphold of fox hunting. Yeah, right. Yeah, of course. So there are, like, maybe 1.7 million-ish. Okay. Um, and I'm saying it that way because, man, this statistic was hard to chase down. Sure. So the whole internet said, like, 7.2 million or 7 million. Okay. And I was like, and then this one paper was, like, 1.7. And I was like, that is a big difference. Sure. <laughs> we figured this out. And what happened, which happens a lot, is that everyone copied their information directly from Wikipedia. Yeah. And Wikipedia was not wrong, however out of date. Okay. There has been a newer um, revised uh, estimate, and they called the old estimate. It's not like the population dropped that much. It's that they called the old estimate uh, just wrong, basically. And they said it was probably because um, there was far fewer um, study areas sampled. Sure. And they sampled areas where they had really high fox density. Yeah. And not... Other types of areas, so they think they vastly overestimated because of that. Sure. Got it. Anyways, I'm going to go with 1.7 million-ish. And they now occupy like 6.2 million square kilometers of mainland Australia, 80% of the 
of the continent. Um, they're not in like the northern part only. Okay. Yeah. They're also on about 50 Australian islands. Well, that's quite a few. Yeah. So um, they are actually thought to be the primary cause of extinction for at least 20 species so far. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, they're okay. bad. Including the desert rat kangaroo way back in the 1930s. I mean, officially it was declared extinct in 1994, but it was last seen in the 1930s. So it's probably somewhere in the middle. I see. Or we'll eventually find another one someday, but you can okay. only hope. Maybe. Right? Um, they're, of course, responsible for other animal population declines. Um, like marsup- They're really bad for marsupials. Marsupials do not know how to get away from a fox. Sure. It's just not happening. So like the brush-tailed burrowing and rufous betong, which you should just look up because these are Australian animals and they look super cool. Betong. B-E-T-T-O-N-G. Uh, the bilby, the numbat, the bridled nail-tail wallaby, and the quokka. Yeah. They're bad for all those. <laughs> um, so in 2016... Researchers reported that some red foxes had learned to climb trees to look for baby koalas and, like, sugar platters and stuff to eat. So they're really just expanding there. <laughs> they're wow. expanding their range upwards yeah. also. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the estimates are that foxes kill 88 million reptiles a year in Australia, 111 million birds, um, about 93% of those being native birds, and 367 million mammals. Yeah. Only 29% of those being native thanks to all the livestock and rabbits they eat. Yeah, okay. So, okay, great. They are good at eating rabbits. Wonderful. Um, yeah. Only so, about 200 million to go. Get on that, yeah. Um, so there has been local eradication programs. Uh, it's not going well. Um, the There's one fox, like one fox that they've been trying to, they tried to catch for four and a half years. So they nicknamed him Rambo. Sure. They were trying to trap him, poison him, and kill him for four for four years, and they they couldn't get him. So they had to delay their like mammal reintroduction to the area until the fox just like died of natural causes. They just couldn't do anything about it. Wow. Yeah. So again, poison baits for foxes. It's a big thing. Ten eighty poison you might have heard of, mm. and fox hunting is legal in all states. Okay. They, people are encouraged to shoot foxes. I assume there's no. Native foxes to Australia. No. Yeah, okay. No. Um, but the reintroduction of a competitor in certain areas has been floated around as an idea. Hmm. But a Just native... add more. Dingoes. Oh, okay. They're thinking, we'll put dingoes over here. Um, even though dingoes are, like, invasive, but a long, long, long time ago? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, some scientists say they should reintroduce Tasmanian devils to the mainland. That would do the same thing. Hmm. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, because they did eradicate foxes in Tasmania. So Oh, they did. I didn't know that. I don't know how big of a role the devils played, but Okay. Um, okay. The next big problem, and it's a big problem, is cats. Mm. The most boring, predictable problem sure. ever. Yeah. So domestic cats were introduced to Australia with the first fleet, like so seventeen eighty eight we're talking here. Um, there's been a lot of reintroductions, obviously. Um, cats spread rapidly, probably the whole continent in about 70 years. Yeah. Um, they're everywhere. They occur on a hundred Australian islands. Um, 92% of the landmass of Australia, basically. Yeah. So there are between 2.1 and 6.6 million feral cats in Australia. And I know that's a big range. I was also wondering the same thing, but it's like apparently... 
it fluctuates a lot throughout um, the year over the course of a few years. So it's the best estimate. Well, plus there's a, I'm sure there's a very strong domestic cat population as well that at any point could, you know, some some percentage of it be, could become feral and help bolster those numbers. Um, that's true, but they they have separated out um, the kind of like pet animals that have ever been pets recently from feral. Like feral okay. cats have been wild for a very long time. I see. Okay. Like decade. You know what I mean? Like they, like their line has been feral for a long, long time now. Mm, got it. Um, and then there was another category. Like there was pets, there was feral, and then there was like another category for more like for strays, I think they called it. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So we're just, there's also the strays. And then there's also the domestic cats that people still let up out of their sure. house to, to do whatever yeah. things. Um, so again, they're adaptable, which is an issue. They eat like up to brush tail possum sized prey, but as little as, you know, a small fish, right? So, so they're adaptable. Um, there are a few predators, dingoes, foxes, the wedge tailed eagle does in feral cats. Yeah. Um, so there's this island called Macquarie Island in Australia. And on Macquarie Island, feral cats cause the extinction of the red-fronted parakeet, or a subspecies of the red-fronted parakeet. Um, and they think they're about to cause the extinction of a bunch more. Like, there's so many critically endangered things that they are preying on. Um, you know, bilby, there's called something called a mala, numbat, all those marsupials. Yep. Um, so they think that cats were a causal factor in the extinction of most of the species lost, the mammal species lost since European settlement. That number's at 30 now, by the way. Wow. So most of those 30, they're blaming at least partially on cats. So cats and foxes. Yeah, they're real bad. So cats kill an estimated 466 million reptiles a year. Yeah. I'd like to remind you, foxes, it was only 88 million. <laughs> it's true. Um, all cats, though, if we're including all cats, 609 million reptiles a wow. year. Wow, wow, wow. Um, 265 million birds. Mm-hmm. All cats, that's 399 million birds. Get ready for this number. Feral cats kill 815 million mammals a year. All cats, 1,067 million. So we're talking about 1 billion now. Yeah. 1 billion and 6,700,000 um, It's a crazy number. Yeah. Holy cow. Mammals a year. So how can... How can anything survive that for long, right? Yeah. So that's an issue. Um, control techniques have been successful on small areas like the islands. Like, they have now um, removed them from Macquarie Island. Okay. Um, the good news is that there's a bird species, the gray petrel, that has started breeding on the island again for the first time in more than 100 years. Sure. So, yay. Excellent. Um, right. But it's it's much harder on the mainland. They tried this barrier fencing and eradicating just the area inside the fences and then kind of putting a lot of native mammals in these little areas. Um, so now they have these 28 fenced enclosures that cats have been eliminated from and they've introduced native animals. But total, those only cover 594 square kilometers. Oh, not very much at all. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, all right. I said we'd get back to the ants. You did. So I'll talk about the ants. Okay. Okay. So 
the red imported fire ant is the mm. big one, the big issue. Um, so it originates in South America and it has invaded a lot of places. Uh, the United States, there's some Asian Caribbean countries, now Australia and New Zealand. Um, they are one of the worst invasive species in the world, unfortunately. And they eat everything as well. They'll eat insects, frogs, reptiles, birds, mammals. Sure. Which seems kind of crazy because they're an ant. Yeah, but... They're very aggressive. And they have a lot of numbers. Right. And Australia and New Zealand have a lot of ground nesting animals. Yeah, okay. A lot. So, um, also, plants. Plants are at threat from fire I would red definitely fire think ants. so, yeah. Um, they damage, like, the seedlings and all these things. They can't, yeah, re- reproduce themselves, and then that's not good. Um, also, people are hurt by fire ants. Um, in the United States, fire ants have killed 85 people. Like, they've been there for a little while. They've killed okay. 85 people. They tend to sting around the eyes, nose, and mouth. Sure. Leading to blindness, throat swelling, suffocation. Fun things. Yeah, they're potent. They're not cool. Um, They also invade, like, food and water supplies. So then there's some animals that have died from dehydration because they won't go... Get water. Get water. Um, They're worried about, like, in the U.S., they've destroyed, like, irrigation systems, farm equipment, all this stuff, and they're really worried about the effects on agriculture. and they also do farm these scale insects, and the increased scale insects are an issue for agriculture as well. Um, so all this sucks. And there's been a few entries of fire ants into Australia. It all kind of started around 2000, 2001. Well, somewhat recently then. It, it, it is. So they're, they're really hoping that they can eradicate them. Yeah, before it gets way out of control. Yeah, the initial Brisbane infestation, though, spread to around 300,000 hectares. So that one's... Pretty big. Really, really hard to control. Um, They're saying it's still technically feasible to eradicate fire ants from this Queensland, this area. uh, Costs, though. The costs are very restrictive. Um, so up to June 2016, governments had already spent more than 329 million trying to eradicate fire ants. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., fire ants have cost the economy an estimated $7 billion. Sure. Yeah. Um, so they're trying something in the U.S. where they use these parasitic flies and the, the fly lays an egg into individual ants, and then the eggs develop in the ant's head and, you know, kills the ant, obviously. Um, so they're also testing infecting the flies with a pathogen as well, like a bacteria. Okay. Targeted towards the ants. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in Argentina, they, they use targeted pathogens as well. Um, Australia is basically going with, like, bait. Like, okay. baiting spraying areas but like they're just trying to kill them all yeah uh with insecticide and some have other chemicals like a growth inhibitor for insects or something like that but mostly it's the it's the it's the killing Hmm. um lastly for australia at least for the you know specific creatures of australia we're going to talk about feral feral pigs which 
are becoming an issue where we live as well. They're an issue in a lot of places. Um, So they even, in Australia, dig up and eat sea turtle eggs and eat sea turtle hatchlings as they're trying to get into the ocean. Um, So the first recorded release of pigs in Australia was made by someone you have heard of. Mm, For the purposes of hunting. Captain James Cook. I have heard this name. He released with Adventure Bay, which is a Bruny Island, in 1777. Apparently, he had a policy of introducing animals and plants to newly discovered countries. Oh, good for him. I guess That's wonderful. he just thought everything should be the same as his house. His home. I don't know. I don't know why he did that. But this is what it says in the logs. He, quote, carried them, a, a boar and a sow. About a mile within the woods at the head of the bay, and there left them by the side of a freshwater brook. Hmm. How, How romantic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the pigs are really bad because of a lot of different factors. Like, their tusks, they root yeah. through the, the soil. Just destructive, like, physically. Yeah. So, erosion, plant life, get, like, everything is messed up, right? Soil cycle, water cycle, plants, roots, everything. Yeah. Um, and then... In a lot of these places that are destroyed, then you get these weeds or even even native species, but they're taking advantage of this huge gap that shouldn't be there. Like, for instance, there's something called the bracken firm that really grows well in this damaged environment, and it'll just dominate the whole area, and it prevents light from reaching the forest floor, unfortunately, and kind of throws off everything. Yeah, the ecosystem's definitely... Yeah. Well, and maybe not destroyed, but significantly impacted. Yeah. So the reason I think invasive species are more interesting to talk about in, for instance, Australia and New Zealand is the like isolation that they had for um, so long, yeah, for so long from Europeans and um, the animals are like nothing you see anywhere else. Sure. More than most places. Yeah, maybe with the exception of, like, Madagascar or something like that. Right, and so that's what makes invasive species such a huge deal. Yeah. Um, is that everything is so vulnerable, and we don't want to lose it all. Um, so I was reading a report that was talking about the both cost in money and, yep. like, danger to native species of different invasive species in Australia. Um, and it estimated in the last 60 years that invasive species have cost the Australian economy like $390 billion Australian. Okay. That's a pretty large figure. But keep in mind that it's necessarily an underestimate because all they're doing in these studies is going through every government record they can find and trying to find money earmarked for something like this. So you're obviously okay. going to have a lot of things that aren't marked down in a way that you could find them. A sure. lot of expenses the government made. Plus, you know, you're not factoring in at that point, like damages to an economy somewhere or... What I'm trying to say yeah. is that is definitely an underestimate. I know yeah. it sounds like a big number. Um, so nowadays, Australia spends about $25 billion Australian a year managing invasive species. And those costs have really increased exponentially. Sure. So it's increased up to six times every decade, like a six-fold increase since the 1970s. Um, and if you're wondering, that $25 billion number represents 1.26% of Australia's GDP. That's quite a bit. It sucks that that has to be where the money is going right now. Yeah. 
Um, so the top three most expensive invasive species. Number one most expensive? Rabbits. Cat. Cat. Okay. Rab- rabbits number two. Got it. Number three, fire ant. So there you go. Sure. Cats, yeah. rabbits, fire ants, they're the worst. Um, but when they go group by group, the most expensive group was um, plants, actually. Invasive plants. Okay. $152 billion U.S. they've spent trying to manage these plants, like ryegrass and ragwort and parthenium. Those are the three most expensive plants. Um, the invasive mammals have cost the country $49 billion, and insects like $12 billion. Okay. And that insect number is going to go up. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so, impact on other species. Rabbits are the most destructive to other species. So, they harm over 320 threatened species. Like they're only measuring threatened species here. Sure. Yeah. Which is, like, a key reason is because they're the only one on this list, well, that have this level of plant involvement as well. So, you plant species and animal species. Right. Yeah. Um, rabbits destroy just the seeds and everything for a plant ecosystem. So, um, they're just real bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second most problematic one is a plant disease, actually, Phytophthora root rot fungus. And that affects 200 threatened native plants. It's quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. And then in third place is feral pigs. They affect 150 threatened species. Cats, 123, and foxes, 95. Okay. I mean, that's all still pretty large. Like, even those are significant numbers of species to threaten. Yeah. All of them do something to plants is the thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so quickly, and I know, again, I'm sorry, New Zealand, you always get the short end of the shaft here. But quickly, we're going to talk about New Zealand. Okay. So I just find this fascinating. So it's kind of off topic. I'm going to say it anyways. 85 million years ago, the island that was going to become New Zealand or islands split off from Gondwana, the supercontinent that they were part of with South America. Okay. And evolved just like with a very few mammal species on New Zealand. Okay. Cool. Very few. Um, so birds started living on the ground. There's no predators, right? Birds right. started living on the ground. Um, a lot of them lost their ability to fly. Okay. So then, unfortunately, people came. Explorers came. There were people. Explorers came 700, 800 years ago. They brought the Polynesian rat with them. Hmm. So the flightless ground nesting birds were real, real easy to kill and hunt by the explorers, too. Don't forget that part. So within two centuries, birds like the moa were hunted into extinction. And if you don't know what a moa is, you definitely should look it up because it's a giant bird and it's super cool. Yeah, it definitely is. Or was. And then Europeans arrived en masse in the 1800s. And they brought Norway rats and ship rats. Good. Just different types of rats. Lots of rats on ships. Yeah. Gotta watch out for that. And then later they, you know, intentionally introduced things like rabbits um, so by 1880, rabbits were already being recognized as an ecological plague, and they're having issues with mustelids also, so like weasels, stouts, ferrets, all those, um, because they introduced them. Yeah. They wanted to get rid of the rabbits. Yeah. So they introduced them. 
Would you be surprised to know that those mustelids are a very big threat to bird populations? Yeah, I'm not particularly surprised. Shocking, right? Um, So, when the first explorers from Polynesia arrived, they estimate there was 245 bird species, a quarter of those being flightless. Today, over 29 or 20%, so 59 species have gone extinct. Two-thirds of city animals are invasive. Yeah. It would take 50 million years to recover the diversity of bird species lost since human colonization, according to one study. Yeah. Um, But plants are an even bigger issue. So the conservative estimate is that New Zealand has at least 19,000 species of introduced vascular plants. And indigenous is like 2,000. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The city of Auckland, in fact, has been declared the weediest city in the world. Oh. Congrats. I wouldn't have guessed. Um, So, to finish off a little story, in 2015, New Zealand's government launched this nationwide effort to get rid of all these invasive predators. It was called Predator Free 2050. Um, They're going to invest 28 million New Zealand dollars to get rid of the invasive mammals and rats, weasels, ferrets, possums, and stoats being their goal. So they had three decades to do this, Um, which would be crazy because New Zealand is 165,000 square miles. And the largest island to ever get rid of all its predators before is South Georgia Island, which is 1,450 square miles. Oof, that's a lot less. Yeah, exactly. So Wellington wants to be the world's first capital city without invasive predators. And they want to do that within 10 years. Okay. So they started on the Miramar Peninsula, which apparently is separated from the rest of the city by an isthmus. Mm -hmm. And I just said that because that word is fun to say. Um, So there's a local organization in Wellington, Predator Free Wellington. They launched in 2019. And um, previously, they'd actually gotten rid of the possums. So they needed to get rid of the rats and the stouts and the weasels on this peninsula. So after the first six months, um, they've gotten rid of all the weasels. Wow. They've trapped thousands of the rats. So by the way, there's about 20,000 people on this peninsula. That's the size of area that we're talking about here. Um, So they're just trying to get all the last rats because, you know, if you don't get them all, they'll repopulate so quickly, right? Um, so they bait traps with poison. They get all the residents involved looking out for rats. Sure. Um, they apparently mainly rely on peanut butter, but Nutella gets the trickier rats. Okay. They love Nutella. Yeah. It's pretty um, good. <laughs> yeah. So there is a sanctuary across the city. That's 500 acres and like big fences and it's called Zealandia, and it was declared pest-free in 2000. So they eradicated all the mammals they could find, basically. And so since then, 18 native species have been released in the sanctuary. So a lot of the ground-nesting birds are there. Yeah. Um, and the birds can that can fly just come and go. Like There's no net or cage or anything. Um, and so apparently the birds are starting to move out from there now Great. into the city again, and that's been amazing. Um, so there's a blackbird-sized native bird called a tui, and it's had a 200% increase in sighting since 2011. Um, the kareru, a large forest pigeon, 
had a 350% increase in sightings. And the Kakariki, which is a red-crowned parakeet, um, 10 times the sightings. So it's been great. It's been excellent. Um, so basically at the end of January, they thought they had only a handful of rats left. And then this is January 2020. Okay. And then COVID happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and with all the confinement programs and all of those, um, they definitely had the rats make a bit of a comeback. Sure. But um, they're, they're really hoping. Now, I haven't read a, an update since um, just kind of after restrictions were easing. And they're, they're, they're feeling hopeful and optimistic. So that's good. Um, on a similar note, if you live in Australia, you probably already know this, but January 13 is the start of great the Great Cone ta- Cane Toad Bust. Okay. The Great Cane Toad Bust, which apparently happens every year. and Sounds exciting. It's a week-long event that just encourages people to catch as many cane toads as possible and deliver them humanely, and they will humanely get rid of them. Good. Um, yeah, so... Watch out for that. Get some cane toads off those streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I don't think we have any housekeeping. Nope, I don't think so. Except we have an email address. Okay. Which is teach me something for, which is the number and not the word. Yep. At gmail.com. All right. Hope to catch you again next time. Once again, I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.